And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, presented by Two True Freaks. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. The simple premise of this show is Dave, me, will read a Daredevil comic, digest it, notate it, and then bring it to the masses in order to analyze the man without fear. And overall, this show has never really been an index show. We're not starting from the beginning, reading each and every appearance in order. It's been sort of a taster's choice type of thing. I'll choose issues that interest me, that I want to talk about, and put those on the table each week. But one of the main missions that I started out on this show, beginning with episode 10, was to cover the complete Frank Miller Daredevil. And overall, from episode 10 to episode 39, that was the main focus. After episode 39, I wanted to take a break and cover some other Daredevil topics, just to kind of diversify it. I feel like I got that out of my system, so I'm ready to sit down and finish this, because it's been there the whole time. This unfinished read-through, and it was just time to put it back on the table. Now, last week, we kind of did an opening salvo of sorts by covering a portion of this week's issue. And with that, what we were covering was the Punisher portion of the issue itself. This week, we jump back into the formal run of Frank Miller, picking up where we left off with episode 39. Which means it's time to get everybody back on the same page. So I'm going to do a quick recap of where we've been so far in the proper run of Frank Miller on Daredevil. Story-wise, we saw Wilson Fisk return to New York. And after his wife Vanessa seemed to die, he resumed his control over the crime families, becoming the kingpin once again. Matt's former lover Electra showed up on the scene, having turned into a bounty hunter slash ninja assassin, and together the two faced down the hand as well as each other. Elsewhere, reporter Ben Urich, who knows Matt's daredevil who figured it out but keeps the secret, joined Matt in pursuing the kingpin-backed mayoral candidate Randolph Cherry. While all of this was happening, Bullseye, Matt's nemesis, had been revealed to have a brain tumor, which was removed after Daredevil saved the assassin's life. Turns out, removing the tumor did not make Bullseye less of a killer. But, in Bullseye's absence, Elektra became Fisk's chief assassin. So while Bullseye's in prison, Elektra's taking his job and killing people for the kingpin. Now, as far as the Randolph Cherry thing, thanks to dumb luck, Daredevil happened to find out Vanessa was still alive in an underground homeless fiefdom. Having discovered this, they leveraged that knowledge to have Cherry drop out of the race. However, Fisk was not happy. So he sent his chief assassin, Electra, to kill Foggy Nelson in retaliation. When it came down to it, she couldn't go through with it when Foggy recognized her and sent Foggy on his way. But this put her in the crosshairs of Bullseye, who had just sprung himself from prison, and Electra was killed by her own side by Bullseye. She died on the steps of Matt's brownstone, leading Daredevil to seek out Bullseye, because the blood was on Daredevil's hands, having saved Bullseye's life. The two had an intense fight that ended with Bullseye taking a long fall, and the last time we saw him, he was in a full-body cast. This is exactly where we pick up this week as we look at Daredevil number 182, the May 1982 issue, with a cover by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen. 
It's another familiar cover. Most of the covers in this run are well known. We have Daredevil, Sans Mask, embracing Electra's headstone on a snowy night with the Hamlet quote, For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come. I have to be honest here, I've never cared much for this cover. I get that it's quote-unquote iconic, but Matt has this potato face. I don't like the way the face is depicted, and, and while that's a big gripe for me, the creepiest thing is the way he's holding the stone. This ends up bordering on parody. It's heavy-handed and in, kind of insulting, to be honest with you. It takes what could have been a good metaphor to an outright farce. It's just club-footed in its presentation. It's as subtle as a boot to the head. Having said that, the purple color of the background with the snow, uh, which is on vellum, so it's a color hold, thanks Firewater Podcast, looks good. It stands out. It sets a certain mood, and I think the background is really the star of this. And of course, the tombstones being jagged and everything. The background looks great. The concept of Daredevil dry-humping the headstone really bothers me. But the issue, of course, is written and penciled by Frank Miller. Klaus Jansen is on inks, and we'll just call it finishes, since Miller's pages were becoming rougher and rougher at this point. And Jansen also colored the book. Joe Rosen lettered the issue, and it is widely reprinted. You can find this in Daredevil Punisher Child's Play number 1, Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 2, Essential Punisher Volume 1, The Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Jansen Omnibus, and Digital HD Quality on Marvel's Comics app, Comixology, and Digital Unlimited. And as if to directly contradict the cover, the story is entitled, She's Alive. And we open with this big splash of Matt's face exclaiming the story title, She's Alive. Why do we need to be this close? It doesn't really give any intensity, it's just awkward. Like, I don't know what's going to happen here. It's the end of the date, or me and Matt going to kiss? I'm not sure. Also, Matt's brown hair throws me off, I'm not sure who I'm looking at exactly. But coloring errors can happen. The thing about opening this is, it doesn't necessarily have a good, welcoming feeling to the issue. It doesn't intrigue you, it's more like Matt Murdock saying, boo! And what we're seeing here is basically Matt Murdock has awakened in the middle of the night. And he's had this dream about Electra, just convinced that she's alive. And as much as he tries to reason it away, he just can't shake that feeling. And as we turn the page, we go from that really tight, close shot to this very long, tall shot from across the room. And it's odd because the scene is cast in this sickly green background. And there's the shadow of the blinds haphazardly along the wall there. And we have multiple masks on the wall. So we get the idea of sickness and chaos from the blinds and the color, and then we have the mask, and sure, there's a metaphor to be had there. Of course. Matt, being a superhero, hides behind a mask, puts his feelings behind the facade of Matt Murdock from time to time. Maybe there's a deception here, and that's kind of what's haunting Matt at the moment. So Matt gets out of bed, and he walks across the room, and I have to point out that as he's walking across his bedroom... The curtains are blowing into the room as if the window is open. As we're going to see, this is an extremely cold, snowy night. So, not sure exactly what the idea was there. It looks good, but it doesn't make much sense in the context of the story. As far as that deception metaphor, Matt really reasons it out loud. Electra trained with ninjas. She was a ninja. Ninjas have ways of avoiding death or making the appearance of death. And he's not entirely wrong. We've seen hand ninjas burst into flames. We've seen Kirigi come back from pretty much anything and everything you throw at him. But let's not forget that Electra literally died in Matt's arms on the step of this very brownstone. Matt was there when she died. So there's some semblance of reality that has to sink in that, you know, there are certain functions that he can sense, you know, the heart stopping other disgusting things that happen when you die that they can't really easily be faked. Having said that, this leads to a really super sequel 
sequence of Daredevil suiting up and running out the skylight into a snowy night, proving Matt's heat bill must be insane since he leaves windows open in the middle of winter. From there, it kind of segues to the Punisher material I talked about last week, which of course we're going to skip because I covered it last week. So we're going to jump over to Glenn Industries, where Heather Glenn is sitting in with her board of directors, and they're trying to get her to sign some shady paperwork. With a shady pen in a shady office, you know the whole thing. This scene is depicted in an interesting way. There's no real background, no definition to the room, but there is a large window. So it's a white background, big window, with another blue color hold, which looks phenomenal. And there's a real pool table green theme going on here in the boardroom, which I kind of get as a metaphor. Last week we saw it in the Punisher's cell. This week we're seeing it in a boardroom, which kind of implies to me that a boardroom can sometimes be just as much a prison as an actual prison. I really have to ask, what the hell is Heather wearing? She's in this full cowboy gear, not good cowboy gear. She's not going for like an urban cowboy look. She looks like Marty McFly in Back to the Future 3 in the faux cowboy outfit. It doesn't work and it really, really bothers me. And in list of things that should bother me but don't, all of the board members look like they were cloned from the exact same person. I'll be honest with you, we shouldn't worry too much about this scene. It's going to be sowing seeds that we're going to see bear fruit in issue 185. So it's a slow-burning subplot. Just earmark it for now. Jumping back to Matt, he's doing an interrogation at Josie's bar, which means somebody just got thrown through a window. And while there, Daredevil learns that Kingpin is hosting a gangster summit of sorts at midnight that night. Now, I want to remember the time frame that's going to become important towards the end of the episode. So this is uh, early morning, and yet Josie's bar is full of people. But we're learning something that's going to happen at midnight that night. So after the interrogation, Matt returns to Nelson and Murdoch's swanky new offices, thanks to the J. Jonah Jameson and Cherry case. See, Jameson hired Nelson and Murdoch to defend them against potential lawsuit with Randolph Cherry. And this sequence is actually very vertigo-inducing. We have Matt swinging across the city, and then we have this tall, thin panel with Matt obsessively looking out the window. We're looking down a high-rise floor-to-ceiling window, so we see Matt, and that shoots straight down to the buildings below. Guys, I'm not good with heights, so this, this panel bothers me. And what is Matt up to? Is he doing important legal work? Helping clients? No, no, no. He's obsessively looking over Electra's coroner report with Becky. Just making sure, is it the right body? Let me find out if it's the right body. He is losing his sh- And to add to this, Heather Glenn walks in, and most men would know not to discuss dead girlfriends around their lady. Matt has no such filter, apparently, because he's asking Becky if there was blood in Electra's lungs, because that would prove somehow this was the wrong corpse. And not only does he do this faux pas, he breaks off a date with Heather to check on his possibly dead, not dead Electra ex-girlfriend type thing that almost tried to kill him. She reaches up to touch his face, just trying to be nice, and he grabs it and yanks it away, and then hurts her hand when removing it. Matt Murdock is being a douche, ladies and gentlemen. Complete and total Massingill. Summer's Eve. It bothers me just how much he's reacting to this. Why is this death challenging Matt so much? If you look at the relationship, yes, they had something hot and heavy in college. And that meant a lot to Matt, and I get that. But Electra had been off the table for years, with no mention, and she'd only been back for a couple of months. And during that couple of months, they mostly fought. And by fought, I mean they physically fought. Electra tried to kill him. So this reaction is is bothersome. It's a little over the top. Well, not a little. It's a lot over the top. It's too much, and it's going to get worse by the end of the issue. And Matt's still blathering about Electra as Heather's storming out. Out. This scene is playing out. Heather's yelling at him. He's asking about the blood in the lungs as Foggy is showing this prospective client around. 
And of course, this jacked up scene scares the client away, so now Foggy's just a little bit miffed. And Foggy's the one that finally snaps at Matt, finally calls him on his crap, which is what Foggy does. He calmly closes the door to the office and yells, have you lost your mind? And then there's this silence. It's actually well done. It's such a subtle piece for such an unsettle issue. A long shot of everybody, Matt's face, and Matt answers calmly, I don't know, before leaving. This is good storytelling. Matt has something bothering him. He's called out on it. He's not sure where he stands. The words aren't there. There's nothing that could be said beyond this that would really seal that Matt is in a bad place mentally. It's pretty much the best scene in the issue, guys. Superb storytelling on this page and the way this plays out. So going from the subtle back to the unsubtle, we catch up with Daredevil later as he is smashing up the Kingpin's office, beating up Fisk's guards, demanding to know what Fisk knows about Elektra. Maybe Fisk hid her away... And I gotta say, the scene with Daredevil fighting the guards is lazy. There's no background, but it's not in an artistic way like the boardroom. It's just lazy. And it looks like Daredevil's beating up John Cleese, and let's be honest, John Cleese has done no harm to anyone ever. But in all seriousness, Daredevil demands to know what Fisk knows, and Daredevil senses Fisk's heartbeat jump. So Fisk must be lying, right? Daredevil's taking this as a sign, and I just want to say, wrong sign, fool, you're missing the forest for the trees yet again. And because Daredevil's acting so over the top, Fisk has him mentally. And he just takes Daredevil down a notch and says, are you ill? The Daredevil I know would never resort to unprovoked violence to test a theory. We have Daredevil's hand, a close shot of his hand with Billy Club in it, relaxing, and then putting it away and walking away in defeat. And this is not subtle in the way that the silence was, but it sells the same kind of thing that Daredevil is completely off his rocker. And he's realizing it. He knows it, but he can't stop this compulsion. He has to know, even against his better judgment. And Daredevil completely misses the fact that the real reason the Kingpin's heartbeat jumped was the fact that Daredevil was on the wrong path. That narcotic shipment that we talked about last week that the Punisher takes down, that's what Kingpin and his people are discussing. And the Kingpin actually says it straight up. The one man I thought would be an obstacle is chasing phantasms. And just a note, that's the only real connection between the Punisher portions of the issue and the Daredevil portions is this narcotic shipment. I don't feel like either episode this week or last week is lacking by separating them because they were so separated already. Now, as a whole, this issue ends up feeling disjointed because of that. But that's the least of my worries. Because now the issue gets really, really creepy. We jump over to Foggy and Deb at 4 a.m. in the morning, 4.02 a.m. to be exact, getting a call from Judge Coffin. Well, let's be honest, it can't be a good sign when a judge is calling you at 4 in the morning. But Foggy's wife, Deb, wakes up before Foggy and gets the call. While Foggy struggles with the glass he got his hand stuck in on the side table. And apparently the call is intense because Deb's eyes go from brown to blue in exactly two panels. Yet another coloring mistake. And what is the reason for Coffin's call? Matt woke him up in the middle of the night to get an order to exhume Electra's body. Oh, people, we've crossed the Rubicon here. Matt's lost his mind completely. He's trying to dig people up. Now, admittedly, he's trying to do it legally, which is a step up from what's actually going to happen, but he's trying to dig dead people up. And of course, Foggy being Foggy doesn't hesitate. He throws on some clothes, goes out in the snowy cold and wee hours of the morning to look for Matt. And while I applaud Foggy, I kind of have to mention this is where my real issues with the comic begin. I've been pretty brief so far on the issue because what I really wanted to talk about was in the latter portions. I want to care about Matt. I want to feel for him in this time. I want Elektra's death to matter. But it's not happening here. Mourning somebody doesn't mean you go bat crazy. It just doesn't. 
Let's look at what we've seen in the issue so far. Matt has been driving Becky and the company resources to examining this death on the hunch. He's pushed Heather away and physically abused her to some extent, and he's jeopardizing his and Foggy's practice just as it's getting back on its feet, all because of this hunch. This isn't mourning. This is paranoia. He's not sad. He's probably afraid. Think about it. There's probably some small part of Matt that feels like Electra got away. She was a killer that he vowed to bring in, and she got away. Now, you could also argue this is a clever scenario to hide the truth from himself, that he's in denial, one of the five stages of grieving. This is one hell of a denial phase, people. This goes beyond what a normal, rational person would experience. And yes, with superheroes, things are magnified. Things are more epic and grand and things like that. This isn't that. Beyond the night that Elektra actually died in his arms and, of course, identifying the corpse, the last time Matt saw Elektra alive, she caught his leg in a bear trap and then kicked a chimney so it fell down on him. She tried to kill him. She knocked him into a basement and left him for dead. And yes, as contrast, before that, Elektra and Daredevil fended off the hand. She protected him, but that was before. So this reaction doesn't make sense. To go off the deep end so quickly and in such an over-the-top fashion, risking other people, getting foggy out of bed in the middle of the night, ruining a relationship with Heather, potentially damaging the firm that Foggy and Matt just rebuilt. And I will concede, yes, there was love, but years have passed. Matt moved on. Think about Karen. Think about his relationship with the Black Widow and Heather. And over those years, we saw very intense change. It was when he became Daredevil. When that love existed, when that relationship was a thing, Jack Murdoch had not died. So Matt is a very different person than when he was with Elektra, and Elektra was clearly a very different person. So these reactions are terrible. They're terrible. They're bad storytelling is what they are. They're over the top for shock value. And it gets worse. Because Foggy's out searching for him while Matt is at the graveyard digging up Elektra's corpse. I remember the first time I read this, and the second time, and especially this time to prepare for the show, this is where the issue completely lost me. I mentioned the five stages of grief. You have denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Now, they're not always in the right order. That'll vary, and sometimes you can relapse to one or another. Everybody's a little bit different. We saw anger in 181 in the fight with Bullseye. Daredevil was out for blood. And in the Gene DeWolf episodes, we talked at length about Matt having a certain degree of detachment. Everybody having a threshold simultaneously, and it's being presented here as Matt crossing that line of detachment and being hit with that threshold. It doesn't feel organic, it feels disingenuous to the story so far. In the fight with Bullseye, since it was so personal, since blood was on Matt's hands, it made sense there. And we do eventually get to the depression and acceptance. Matt does get there, it just takes digging Electra up to do it. And the sequence of Matt digging up Electra is horrific, like something out of Tomb of Dracula. He actually opens the coffin, mentioning the smell, and it's disgusting. It's in bad taste, not just out of place. So there's a couple of things that really bothered me, just on an emotional level, on a storytelling level, and a semantic level. I mentioned the timeline. With this issue, and that includes the Punisher material from last week, we have a span of 24 to 26 hours, give or take. And we can measure this that Frank is told the narcotic shipment will occur in 16 hours. And the Punisher is seen busting up that narcotic shipment in a scene concurrent with this. It's happening almost at the same time, within, I would say, 30 to 40 minutes. We also have them mention that Kingpin's meeting, which Daredevil entered into and completely ignored, was happening at midnight. So, all within the same day. 
tightening that up, Foggy gets a call at 4.02 a.m. from Judge Coffin about Matt requesting the order to exhume Electra. Coffin, having been just woke up, probably a little ticked, pretty immediately called Foggy, I would guess, within minutes, maybe a half hour at most. And just to add something to the timeline, as I'm coming to this point, it's also a snowy day. The ground is frozen. So we have our time frame. This is going to be key. Let me get into some numbers for you. And, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. These numbers are for example purposes just to sort of support my point. They're not exact because these things will vary. But according to research, a standard cemetery plot is eight feet long by two and a half feet wide and six foot deep. Now, this is about 120 cubic feet or 4.44 cubic yards. So it began to wonder how much does that weigh? How much dirt is that? So I googled Home Depot. And I found a cube of topsoil. And just to get a parameter, this is a, its a one cubic yard, which weighs about two and a half cubic feet, is what it spreads to. And the cube that covered that two and a half cubic feet is 10 pounds, which means we're looking at 96 pounds per square yard. This means Matt is trying to dig up 426 pounds of soil. This is just Matt and a shovel, 426 pounds, and that'll vary, displacement based on the coffin, etc., but the underlying point is it's a lot of soil and Matt has nothing more than a shovel. This is a time-consuming task. Is Matt up to it physically? Sure. Does the time match up? No. We're looking at two and a half hours, maybe three hours worth of work. Maybe more. Not to mention that he pulls the casket out of the ground. Now, there's a lot to be said about fulcrum points and space, but I'm sure W. Blaine Dollar would be the guy to ask about that. Semantically, exhuming electrode doesn't work. It just doesn't work, and it always bothered me. It never sat right with me that he was able to get the coffin out of the ground that easily. Now, there are some factors that I will say are in play. It's a fresh grave, so the soil's not as packed in, but it's also a cold night. So what we're dealing with in terms of density would be basically a steak versus ground hamburger. There's still a lot there to sift through. So it just doesn't seem quite realistic. And I know we're supposed to have a certain degree of suspension of disbelief, but that was the point where I couldn't go any further. Now let's also think about this. Matt woke Judge Coffin out of bed, asking to exhume somebody. And then this grave is vandalized. And Foggy and Matt are walking away. They haven't reburied her. They don't even seem to have closed the casket, for the love of Pete. Foggy's comforting Matt, and the corpse is still out exposed to the elements. And that leaves me just with a bad taste in my mouth with this issue. It's a disservice to the character of Daredevil to see him behaving so badly. I mean, we're just following up a death that, by Miller's own admission, emulates rape. So we're going to further disrespect this character by exhuming her. And yes, I'll concede some doubt could exist because of the whole ninja element, but Matt is taking this too far. And you know what? Let's point fingers correctly. Frank Miller is taking this too far. And of course, one of the main appeals about Daredevil is that he's imperfect. He'll make mistakes. He does very human things. This is inhuman, though. Exposing Electra's dead, blue, bloated corpse to the world and then walking away, leaving her there. Is it offensive? Yes, it is. Now, I'm not somebody who's a prude. If something's offensive, sometimes it's there for a reason. Sometimes it pushes certain buttons. If it serves the narrative, yes, I may be offended, but I'm willing to go forward with it and not rally against it. This doesn't serve anything in the story. And I'm starting to wonder if Miller's working through some demons of his own here. Definitely raises an eyebrow, doesn't it? In interviews, Miller often reiterates ad nauseum that Electra is dead. Did you know Electra's dead? And that may be true from his point of view, or at least was. But that joke has gotten old and stale. And now at this stage, comic book fans just greet it with an eye roll. We get it. He's, yes, Electra's dead. And this is the beginning of that joke. Instead of real emotion, 
instead of real mourning, instead of Matt really going through everything, basically all this does is suck the pathos and dignity out of Electra's passing. We could have had a lot of irony, it could have had something strong here, but instead we get the story that's just dropped like a hot potato. And when you look at how the Punisher stuff played out, which we saw last week and this, it's like two separate issues in one. It just felt so disjointed. That's the main thing. Disjointed because you have two separate storylines happening that don't relate. And just to bring it all into focus, the Punisher sequences, they work. The escape is fun. The setup is great. The the action is really, really good. The look is right. The result of this issue is that Matt feels like a shell and it actually manages to chafe the reader. It's so over the top, it's eye-rolling bad. It's not mourning, it's acting out like a child. And this isn't earned by the relationship between the characters. The the relationship was never really explored all that much. The connection was already changed. And I've kind of made that point, but I gotta reiterate it here. With this and the next two, we kind of hit a weird low point of Miller's run. What I called the wobbly period. Before it really goes into a full run towards its conclusion. This issue is not respectful or mindful of the dead, nor does the imagery really make anybody feel anything beyond discomfort. It's a real missed opportunity, and it really hacks me off that this could have been a very strong issue instead of, well, dropping the ball. I'm not going to sit here and beat on the dead horse. I've made it clear I don't like this issue. I've made it clear why. It's dark and somber for the sake of being dark and somber. It's kind of an issue that's like a sad, sad drunk sitting all alone in the corner of the bar. The guy that doesn't have a great story to tell, nothing really to mourn, just a sad alcoholic with the neon sign flashing above them. And that's how I feel about Daredevil number 182. Luckily, things will be looking up next week as the Punisher returns and comes into conflict with Daredevil as we finally see the light of day on the Child's Play storyline. Still a little wobbly, but I think we're going to have a good time over the next two weeks. With that, I'm going to cool off. I'm going to take a quick podcast promo break. I'll be back in just a few minutes with email. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Or maybe... Dragon How about... Or... In the year 1999, an abandoned alien battle fortress crash-landed on the planet Earth. Our most brilliant scientists and engineers spent the next 10 years reconstructing the damaged ship and studying its highly advanced space technology called Robotech. Do you remember... Our Star Blazers! Or this... The year is after Colony 195. As the world constantly changes in the chaotic era, there are two mobile suits that could turn humans into the ultimate weapon. The Wing Zero, and the Epion. Or maybe even this. After the desire for blood pools all, the only hope left is the one they call D. Or this. Team, grappler ships, dead ahead! It wouldn't be fun otherwise. Let's do it! Or... If Cardus is allowed to be reborn, she'll destroy Marmo as well as Lodos. Or have you seen the latest episode of... And just like that, everything changed. At that terrible moment, in our hearts, we knew home was a pen. Humanity, cattle. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should check out Anime Freaks, hosted by Dr. Bill Robinson and me, Gene Hendricks. Anime Freaks is a monthly podcast covering all things anime. It is available at 2TrueFreaks.com, 
and on iTunes under Two True Freaks Presents Anime Freaks. And I have returned. A couple of quick things before I jump into the email this week. First of all, there is a teaser out for Daredevil Season 2 that was presented at NYCC, and it's it's alright. There's not enough really there to make an opinion on, but it's out there. It's easily found on YouTube. Along with that was a new Season 2 poster, which is Gorgeous by Joe Cazada. And it looks like Daredevil is going to be in his full costume. I kind of suspected they would find a way to put him back in the Black Togs, but nope. Looks like we're going full Daredevil this season. Just a couple of quick notes. Nothing big. I know we're running low on time, so I'm going to go ahead and jump into this week's email from Mr. Russell Bragg. Subject line is Dave's Daredevil Podcast 72, The Sin of Pride. Russell writes, Hi Dave, a big congratulations from me on your move to the Two True Freaks Network. I do hope that means you might show up on some of those other shows occasionally. I have thoroughly enjoyed the death of Gene DeWolf saga so much that I have added the hardcover edition to my cheap graphicnovels.com wishlist. By the way, I added another item that you talked about. I listened to you on an episode of King Size Comics Podcast. You were discussing Power of Shazam. As for me, I would love to hear the unreleased Pad Smash episodes. I loved that show. I heard that there was one last episode of Starman Observatory also. Is that true? Just wanted to let you know I'm still listening and enjoying. Keep up the great work. Russell Bragg, Clarksburg, West Virginia, host of the DC Comics Presents show. And since Russell didn't include the link, I'll throw it in here. It's dccpshow.wordpress.com. Russell covers team-ups with Superman in the pages of DC Comics Presents, and he's doing a great job. The show is back in action. First off to your email, Russell. Two True Freaks has been a great experience, but more so it's better to be a part of a group, and I feel this show fits in with Two True Freaks. Especially with both Hey Kids Comics and just one of the guys wrapping up, Sean Engel did a great job covering Green Lantern, so this show really fits in where just one of the guys left off. And you know, last week, just a segue, I said uh, a big congratulations to Andy and Michael for wrapping up their show. I've got to give another big congratulations to Sean, who wrapped up Just One of the Guys recently, a show that I was a guest star on a handful of times, including one of my favorite podcasting moments where Sean and I covered Dallas and Dynasty. And we kept a straight face through the whole thing, until you get to the end of the recording, which you don't hear, when Sean and I finally just busted up laughing. That particular recording, again, was one of my favorite podcast moments. had a lot of fun, and I got to meet Sean Engel in person, and he's just as cool in person as you would imagine. So congratulations, Sean, on completing your run, and one day, far away, I hope to join the ranks of podcasts that completed their run on their own terms. I even know what the last episode of this show will be about. I know exactly what will be covered. I'm not telling, but I know. But back to Two True Freaks and Russell's email. It's it's really gratifying to be part of the group. I didn't know if they would, you know, even give me the time of day. But this show has been flourishing. And just the people in the network being such a great group of people. You had people like Tom Penneries popping in last week. And I'm hoping to do some guest appearances here and there. Uh, You will hear me on another TTF show relatively soon, as soon as I get to editing. Although it's going to be about a topic that's completely unrelated to Daredevil or superheroes. As far as the death of Gene DeWolf, um, because it's a different experience after you know who the killer is, it just, it doesn't get old, is, is one of the fortunate things. It's why it's still in print. And as far as the power of Shazam, run, do not walk to that. I think you will really, really enjoy Power of Shazam, Russell. As far as the Pad Smash episodes, what we have is two. We have one that was a formal episode recorded with both me and Lee and Andrew Leyland. Standard episode covering something outside of Pad. But the other one is just the conversation we had beforehand, which was a lot of fun. Anytime you put Andrew on the mic, fun happens. And they will probably be on this feed somewhere down the line. We're right in the middle of the Frank Miller stuff now, so I don't necessarily want to put it on the block yet. 
but you can expect to hear that somewhere over the next few months. As far as the Starman Observatory episode, unfortunately, Russell, that is lost to the ages. That is not on any hard drive that I have. It looks like it is gone, so I apologize. I really need to find a place to be a repository for some of the shows that I've done that have pod-faded. Xavier's Podcast, Pad Smash, Starman Observatory. Whenever I get a chance, I will do so. That way, all those episodes will be available. But for now, now is not the time for that. Now is the time to wrap up the show. Next week, The Punisher, Child's Play, Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign, all of that and more in episode 77, covering, surprise, surprise, Daredevil number 183. Until then, I am J. David Weeder. Thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks network of podcasts. You can find the show's home at twotruefreaks.com. Also, choose to like the network on Facebook. Simply search for Two True Freaks. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash daveweeder, and you can email the show. The address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf. And you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and keep the lights on at 2TrueFreaks at the same time. What a deal. Daredevil and all related characters are copyright Marvel Entertainment Group. All rights reserved. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not draw profit from the references to the characters herein. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes. All rights lie with the copyright holder. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a production of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Until next time, I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening.